Through my work on the Palestine Black struggle, I've constantly been trying to find the connections. Like, what are the connections? Because now I'm ramping up on the history of uh, the U.S. as uh, you know European colonizers uh, uh, massacring the indigenous, enslaving Africans uh, on the American land that already does not belong to them, and also at the same time colonizing my country and all of the land around it. And so none of the resources that this white power has and has been selling to everybody actually belong to them. It belonged to black and brown indigenous people everywhere. Hi, friends. Welcome to season one, episode 11 of Migrations. I am so honored for you all to hear my guest today, artist Suhat Khatib, who is such an inspiration. We recorded this episode weeks before the murder of George Floyd and the global uprisings about racism and police brutality. But even before this, Suhad's work and voice evokes a message about the connection between Palestinian and Black liberation. But before we get into it, I just wanted to ask you to take a moment to rate and review Migrations. Your support helps me so much. So hop on over to Apple Podcasts and give me a rating. And if you can, visit www.patreon.com slash migrations to support me financially. You can support me for as little as $1 a month, but at the $5 a month level, you'll get migration stickers. Isn't that exciting? So if you can, please visit www.patreon.com slash migrations. Thanks. Now let's get the show started. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm interviewing Suhad Khatib. Suhad is an artist with Palestinian roots. Her pronouns are she and her. Suhad's father survived the massacre of Leeds in 1948. She was born in Oman and grew up in Jordan, moving to the United States 14 years ago, and she currently resides in San Francisco. Suhad describes herself as a futurologist, artist, creative director, filmmaker, and public speaker. You can find her on Instagram at S-U-H-A-D-I-Z-M-S and on her website at www.suhadkhatib.com. Suhad's art drew me in immediately because she uses black and gold in her portraits and paintings so beautifully that it literally straps me in my tracks each time. So welcome, Suhad. How are you? Hey, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for doing this. Um, and just for reference, everyone, we're recording this episode on May 14th, 2020. I've been trying to mention that um, in the midst of this pandemic, just so people have some context. So that's when we're recording this. Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about your migration story. You describe your migration story as Nakba. Can you tell us what that means historically to you and also to yourself as an individual? Yeah. So, I mean, it has a bit of a, a history there. My father, like, so Palestinians in general, every year around this time, actually, they commemorate that day because that's the day when our fathers were pushed out of their cities through a series of massacres that were taken out on the indigenous people of Palestine by um, European gangs. 
And so they were basically asked to leave right away and they never even got to take some of their, like my father doesn't even know his birthday because they couldn't go back to get his uh, birth certificate. And when he ha you have like 10 brothers and sisters, it becomes really difficult to remember who was born when. And so since that day, my father, Ghassan Kanafani, a Palestinian artist, writes it beautifully when he says, and when the, the afternoon was there, we became refugees. So like overnight in 1948, my father became a refugee, five-year-old refugee with a bullet in his leg, not really sure where they're going next because they thought they were going back home in a couple of weeks, but then it's been 70 years since. And so for me as a second generation, I was born many, many years after that Nakba. You know, I was born in Oman because that's where most of the opportunities for Palestinians were in the Gulf area. So that's where I was born because my father was working there. But then when I was around sixth grade, he said he wanted us to move closer to Amman, where he grew up. That's the city he grew up in. And also because it's closer to home. And that's where I ended up growing up. And so after that, you know, a series of things happened. Um, I've had many migrations, if you want. You know, they had they started with my father, but then they continued after that. In Amman, it was very difficult with the situation around the, all of the wars that are happening around us. Amman is a safe place, but it still has all of this um, kind of sadness that exists in that place that for an artist, you somehow need to think of other alternatives, right? And most of my friends were out of town at that point. You know, it was a privilege to be able to leave and start all over again. I fell in love and uh, followed a boy to the U.S., and in the U.S., uh, you know, as a couple, we had to move multiple times from city to city because uh, I was a brown woman in the U.S. And it was so difficult. There was so many restraints against us as brown people um, at workplace and some, you know, different forms of economic migration, if you want. So um, I've had multiple migrations. We we don't like to call the one in 48 migration, though, because it was not by choice. Sometimes you you know when when you're when you leave by choice is different when you're leaving because you don't want people to shoot at your kids and nakbas means catastrophe right yes yeah i think that's a big difference between like my parents you know voluntarily migrated meaning yes there was potentially quote unquote more opportunity in the united states but they were not driven out with the, a bullet in their leg like your father was i mean it took me a very long time to really understand what that means really because um, I grew up in a family that really doesn't like to talk about that. They can tell you stories about like how they grew up and they would uh, refer to it the time when we were poor. But they refused to use actual words like uh, nakba. They they refused to use it in the house. They say like when we tajarna, you know, tajarna means when we migrated. As if to gain some form of power on telling that story, you know, like, no, it was kind of a decision, <laughs> you know, but just with a word. But they all know that it was not a decision that was made. And um, because it was a massacre, you know, like it was not, you know, I, may, I probably started understanding it a little bit better when I started seeing the massacres happening in Syria. And that's like in my 30s, you know, until I really understood what my family potentially went through because of like the deep trauma and how they tried never to talk as much as they can not to talk about it. Or if they did talk about it to repeat the same stories, because like those are the stories that they can tell where there is no emotional um, pain. It's just a story that they, they can tell you, they can give you that. So it took me many years to really understand my family and the impact that it had on them. 
Yeah, I think that's really telling, just like you said, about the trauma itself and how that silences. I mean, they had stories, but it silenced some very emotionally strong parts of the story. Yeah, and because also what happened after that, that there was complete erasure of the Palestinian story afterwards. So even if they were to tell what they actually went through, they'd worry that people around them will refuse to believe that. So, so I'm I'm talking about my family. I'm making assumptions even about my own family, but there were 700,000 people that had to flee their cities at the time. And those are the ones who survived. There were thousands more that were killed. And then over the years, you know, there started to become stories about there are no Palestinian people. You know, one time I actually gave, um, I was speaking at a church and when I was done and the majority of the attendees were older white people. And when this was over, a white, a very sweet white lady walked up to me and she was like, you know, when I was a kid in 48, my father told me this is not right what they did to the Palestinians. But then when I grew up and I'm like I was starting to hear the just like learning about Palestine through the news, I started to get confused about my own memory. And that's someone who lived here in the U.S. who did not go through this. So imagine if you're the one who went through the trauma. And we see that with, you know, uh, victims of abuse all the time is that people attack them. And so they silence their own story just because of fear of not being accepted. So, you know, you can put that on massive scale on all of the people who survived wars and how they were not really able to tell us the story. Had you always been aware that there was more to the story or was there a certain point in your life where you realized that there's more trauma than you had heard from your family? I mean, I, I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest, um, because I don't know if any generation knows anything about the generation before it. And like, I feel like we as a humanity were constantly learning about ourselves. Right. And so it's not like... Um, our grandparents' generation also went through their own different kind of war, right? And so there's always like this new war, it seems humanity just keeps fighting with itself. So it's very difficult to know when does your trauma end and when does other where, when the, where does it end? Because it involves so much pain that's happening around the world, you know? And that's how uh, social justice movements happen and internationally because we see each other, like our histories are different. But we understand that we are under similar kinds of oppression, systematic oppression. And in our way of dismantling these systems of oppression, we start leaving behind for the generation after us kind of tidbits about what we've learned about us as a humanity, right? And so um, with the Palestinian question, it's still an ongoing question. So it's really difficult to know when does it end and when does it begin because those European gangs that I mentioned that committed the massacres, some of them, they also survived really horrible circumstances in Europe. And so you're talking about oh, an entire war industry that recruits certain humans against others. And so that's like a human trauma. It's not like specific to my family. This is something that we're all dealing with at this point, you know? Definitely. And I really like how you answered that question because... I think it's so important to realize that it's not so much that we're fighting for the history we know, but we're fighting for the history that was erased, that we don't know about, and that trauma. So I think that's very powerful. And I think it's also fighting for the history we would like to write for ourselves. You know, like it is possible at some point 
that humanity is able to communicate amongst itself, not just in a specific generation, but across generations, living and dead. Because, you know, like I can speak to Voltaire when I read Voltaire. I can speak to Ghassan Kanafani when I read Ghassan Kanafani. And so if we are able to have enough art and enough philosophy that studies these kind of extreme circumstance that we go through, not only through our lens, but in a, in a more collective lens, then maybe there will be a time, you know, for my daughter's grandchildren where they have better data on how to not approach things. And we have developed as a humanity on so many levels, you know, so it's not completely crazy that I'm thinking that. It's just that we really don't know. I mean, the, the past 10 years in technology and the way we changed our entire social existence was extremely more developed than what happened in 10 years before that, you know? So it is possible to be able to know enough about us to stop this from happening over and over again. Wow, that literally gave me chills when you said, we also don't know like the history for ourselves and what is left to write. Yeah. And it also gave me hope because sometimes I do get like hopeless, you know, and I think you're right. There is more data. And the more we fight, the more data we'll get. And I think the times that we're going through, I, I don't know when you're going to post this, but, to, you know, at the times of Corona, in that all of the deaths that's happening around us, all of this uncertainty, it also seemed like there was a moment in time where humanity overall was concerned about the same thing. And it's our being as a humanity, right? And that moment is not a small thing at all. It seemed, it, at least to me, it seemed like a reset moment. And there, there's an article where basically it's like a chance for us to be able to restart thinking about things, about how we actually want to think about things. Because going back to the norm that we had before, it's not viable at this point. It can't be that way. So I think it's like a, this is a great moment for us to start thinking about like, what do we want? Rather, how do we apply to the system? How do we apply ourselves to the system in ways that works for the system? Rather, how do we create the space that we actually need to create that history that we want for ourselves? Yeah, definitely. This is, you know, this great pause as I've heard so many ways of talking about this time. It is a time when we can shift the ways we think, the ways we treat humanity. And I really hope that this opportunity continues to present itself to make some change. You talked a little bit about your art and being in a collective. Can you talk a little bit more about your art? As I mentioned before, I just love the colors and the vivid portraits and paintings that you make. Can you talk about your use of color and, and what inspires you? Yeah, um, my favorite thing to talk about. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> um, so my art, I, you know, I don't know when I started art. I think, you know, um, we all paint before we have language to express ourselves. And um, I never have enough language to express myself. So I guess I continued painting. I stopped when I moved to the U.S. because those first 10 years of living in the U.S., there was so much for me to figure out. It was a completely different culture. I had to, a different language. Everything was just different. And I wanted to go back to art or at least start writing. But um, the language was always a difficult thing for me because I, you know, um, 
I went through a lot of things. I went through migration to a foreign country. I went through three uh, miscarriages, you know, being away from family. So I, I was very determined. And then after that, Ferguson and organizing for Palestine in the U.S. So I was very determined about writing something down. But language was always a barrier for me. Like, which language do I start writing in? Is it English? Because this is the language where I have developed all of these phrases and my understanding of liberation and like international liberation movements it happened while I was in the U.S. But then my mother language and how I analyze things and how I think about things and the words, the, the phrases that I grew up with are in Arabic. So that became a very difficult choice to me. But then when I went through my divorce and it was the same year Trump got elected for president, I felt like we only have five years to live, all of us. And I really have to do something. I have to leave something behind before the end of time. And I decided to not choose between a language, but to go back to painting after 10 years, because then I don't have to make that choice, right? I can just paint and in that painting, I don't even have to say exactly what I'm feeling because I was so confused about so much that was happening in the world at the time. I chose ink, honestly, because my friend Dina Fawakhili, a Jordanian artist, we grew up together. We've been friends since college. We used to paint all the time together. And she told me about this thing called Inktober. It's 30 days and 30 words for 30 days. And she's a comic artist. She, you know, paints it in comics and my painting, uh, you know, it is what it is. And she was like, it's really nice to see us painting the same word in two different styles. And she just like kept nagging me. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it for you. So I did that and I loved ink. So I continued to paint in ink. But I also loved it as a medium because it did not take up all of my energy trying to think of like, what are the colors that I'm seeing in that painting rather what is the story that I'm trying to tell in that painting? That's why I continued with uh, ink. But then gold came into the picture later. I was working on a series of paintings about Arab women through their Orientalist eyes. I had been collecting a lot of these older images of Arab women. And um, I used to always wonder, like, why do they all have the same kind of somber look on their face? They all look sad. And then when I unpacked, you know, racism and understood the U.S. and the foundation of the U.S. and all of that, because those are things I didn't have access to when I grew up in Jordan. It was like all of my understanding was completely different about uh, the U.S. I was only sold on Hollywood. I only know Hollywood about the U.S. So when I learned about myself as a brown woman and I realized that white people probably shot these Arab women. And that's probably why like they were always shot through their Orientalist eye, right? And so I worked on this series of paintings where I am painting the Arab women, but I'm giving them something from me so that they are not stuck in that image forever. You know, so I gave one of them a big heart. I gave some of them philosophy. Others, I gave guns, you know. And there was this one painting where the woman was holding onto a book and the book says, not your fetish. And she's giving the middle finger. And after I was done with that painting, I was like, but this cannot just be a white book or a black book. It has to be the golden book. <laughs> and so I got the gold ink and loved the way it like, you know, talked with the ink, with the black ink. And so I've been doing that since then. And in general, what I'm trying to do with my work is to tell as many stories as I can about the layers of my identity and in other cases, trying to kind of document my um, 
my journey of healing, healing from white supremacy, healing from patriarchy, from um, political religion, from all of the things that were enforced upon me that denied me to be who I am or to speak the way I want to, right? And it was honestly not, you know, I did not have a grand plan. My grand plan was just to have a few hours for me that do not belong to capitalism, you know, just to be by myself or to my family or to anyone, just sit down and have a couple hours for myself. And then I started having the courage to share them on social media. And then I started seeing that a lot of people are reaching out because they're thinking in similar ways or it's inspiring them to think of things differently or telling them a story about Palestine they didn't know before. But then the main purpose that they serve and like so that I don't get distracted because when people start paying attention to your art, you start getting distracted and you don't know where you're going with it next. Um, so I had to make a decision very early on, like who are going to be my target audience for this art? And I picked my mother and my daughter to be my audience because, you know, my mother is the one who introduced me to art in the first place. You know, I used to drive for hours to take me to the art school and join the only art school we had in Amman growing up. And my daughter is the extension of us, both of, like me, all of the women, all the matriarchs in my family, my mother, her mother, and, and so on. Yeah. First of all, one thing that I love about the colors that you use with the ink and the gold is that, you know, the ink is almost like a watercolor and the gold is so pure and solid. And I just love that interplay with something that looks so mutable against something that looks so solid. So I just wanted to tell you that because I just really love that aesthetic. I'm so glad you noticed that. You know, I I sometimes feel like I'm just the third impact. Like the first impact is the water and how it drives the ink. It really is like you have to make mistakes and you have to let the water do its water power. And then how the ink talks to it in a more solid way, you know, like it will not move until you put water in it and it just becomes like nothing. So it's like the water is so essential to this process. And maybe that's what gives it this kind of transparency and connection to people is because it's rooted in something that is the source of our being. I, you know, like at least that's how I see it. Yeah, that's so beautiful and powerful. And I'm glad that I interpreted it in a way that was also meaningful to you. Um, another, I really also liked how you just talked about your target audience, because I think you're right. It's so easy to get distracted in any type of art. And especially once you start getting people's attention and, you know, the, the phrase target audience can actually seem very capitalistic, but I think who your target audience is, is the antithesis of that. It is the people that are driving you, have driven you, and it's like the past, present, and future in one. Like right when you said that, I started thinking, who is my target audience? You know, like for the podcast, for my writing, things like that. And I'm definitely going to rethink things now based on what you just said, because, you know, it doesn't have to be something that's driven by capitalism. It could be driven by your heart as well. Exactly. Exactly. We take what we want and do what we need from that word. As I mentioned, this episode was recorded before the murder of George Floyd, before the uprisings and protests and newfound wokeness that has spread across America. What I talked to Suhad about next is about her community organizing work. She had already been organizing in support of Palestine, 
So I asked her more about the connection between Palestinian and black liberation. So I I lived in St. Louis for 10 years. I lived 20 minutes away from Ferguson. Ferguson was the city where Mike Brown was shot eight times by a police officer, unarmed, kept in the August sun out on the street for four and a half hours while everyone in the neighborhood can see him. There were witnesses that said his hands were up at the time of the assassination. And the way that uh, murder happened and the things that happened after that, the disrespect that the police has exhibited to the community afterwards, caused an uprising in Ferguson, but in all of St. Louis. And so I was uh, organizing on Palestine for some time for years before that. And I also visited Palestine for the first time uh, just a few months before that happened. And just two weeks before Mike Brown was killed, Gaza was under attack and uh, thousands of people were murdered, maybe 2,000 people, if I remember correctly. Just too many people. And I still remember how, you know, it was stuck in my head how after the massacres, the tanks moved the bodies to the sides of the streets in Gaza so that the tanks can go inside the street. It was just a horrific time, you know, what was happening there. And so when the uprising happened and people started organizing, I started getting invited to some of the meetings because uh, youth in Gaza and Ramallah sent youth in Ferguson tweets on how to uh, survive tear gas, because Palestinians always get tear gassed. And the tear gas that was being shot at the youth in Ferguson was actually imported from the Palestinians' colonizer, Israel, right? And so there became an organic relationship between the people on the streets in Ferguson and the people on the streets in Palestine. And I happened to be organizing for Palestine in St. Louis, and so I was able to build really strong relationships with some of the activists on the ground and organize within our community also. And honestly, for me, it was more of an understanding of both my identity and the things that I've learned in Palestine and Palestine from my first visit there and seeing them and understanding them clearly and, you know, in a very simplified way while I'm in Ferguson, because it was the same system of power, even though the history was different, but it was the same form of oppression that was happening over and over for two different people that are socialized to be fearful of each other, right? The Palestinians and Black communities. And so it was a lot of learning for me to do. And when I was done, you know, after in 2015, a year after that, by that time, I was laid off from my job. I was having trouble within my community because we also uncovered, I found out a lot of um, internalized racism issues within the community. I, um, you know, had to move from the city of St. Louis because I was unhirable basically in my field. And so um, since then I stopped organizing because I'm a single mom and I definitely need to have a job. But I started utilizing the art that I'm working, that I have at this point to tell some of the stories that I've seen there or that I know or that I've learned from there. I had no idea about the organic connection that you mentioned about the tear gas. And it is so incredible that you were just there and then returned to St. Louis. It's like you were a literal bridge 
during this time. And I think that whole Ferguson experience, I think, uh, has been one of those spiritual uh, journeys for me personally, because uh, it's a very good observation you made. I stopped thinking of, co like, nothing is a coincidence. After that, I felt that none of this was a coincidence because the timing and how, you know, like, I can tell you some of the details of the details that happened with me during that time and up until this point are just incredible. And like how... Uh, that's probably why I do a lot of my theology study right now. It's because I've always had this question of God, like, does God really exist? And is this really religion, you know, a religion that I can follow and all of that? And then, you know, it was, I remember vividly that, so the uprising started in the summer. And then a few months after that, it was St. Louis winter. And St. Louis winter is very, very brutal. And the office in which I worked in was uh, across the, the street from the DOJ. And it, I remember it was snowing badly that day. And everybody in the office was afraid. Oh, man, how am I going to drive my car in this in the snow? And then I look outside the window and I see hundreds of protesters going from one street to the other, one block to the other. You can see them between the buildings through the snow. And I'm like, this is God. <laughs> this, this, like the way those people are protesting for, for justice for this young man that was killed. This is God, you know? And so Ferguson introduced me to so many ideas, but I think the most important of them is my spiritual search. And by spiritual here, I mean the spirit from what I've learned is the knowledge, you know, it's the knowledge that we have as a humanity. And I now have knowledge about the beauty of humanity through Ferguson, through the Ferguson protesters, you know. And I know that nothing is a coincidence for any of us to, like, be gathered in that place in that moment. Yeah, you know, days after Michael Brown was killed, my divorce was official. <laughs> and I remember it being such a powerful time. And I remember I lived in Chicago at that time. And I remember that following December walking on Lakeshore Drive and joining a protest and it being really cold. And it also felt like a spiritual experience. So when we're just saying all that, I was just reflecting upon my own experience and how, yeah, it is really incredible on a level of humanity and spirituality. Yeah. And how we all cross paths at the end of the day. When our heart is in a specific place, we end up meeting people who are on the same level with us at some point so that we're not alone on that journey. Yeah. And, you know, um, just thinking more about this parallel of your journey from Palestine back to St. Louis at that time, it does make me think of exactly that. It makes me think that when we're really connected to the causes of humanity, there are these connections and parallels that present themselves. Yeah. We just have to open ourselves up to it and really take it in, take it seriously, you know? Most definitely. Wow, I'm so like, wow, I'm like chill. <laughs> really amazing. Um, I also wanted to ask you, you know, I know we talked a little bit about this question of Palestine, kind of going back to that and this question of Asia, because, you know, I feel like some people might be listening to this podcast and maybe this episode saying Palestine, Asia, like what do they have to do with each other? Like that's not what people traditionally think of as quote unquote Asian, which is a huge reason I started this podcast to introduce so many different identities as part of this continent um, and looking at the different geopolitics. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so weird. Like it depends on where you grow up in the world. 
your knowledge is based on where you grow up in the world. So I, I grew up thinking that Jordan and Palestine, where I was raised and where my parents are from, are both in Asia, right? I know that other countries like India, like China are in Asia, but I didn't understand the connection between me and anyone from that country because everyone in around me is like from that area, you know, like the Levant, we call it the Levantine, Syrian, Lebanese, Egyptian, you know, like from that, from that part of the world. So I moved to the U.S. and the world is so open and it's so diverse and there's people from everywhere. I'm learning about new countries that I didn't even know existed. You know, it just tells you to like how little we know about each other. And I love to read. So it's like I'm not like a completely ignorant person. I just like really did not know anyone from that place that can tell me a story about it in that way. Right. And through my work on the Palestine Black struggle, I've constantly been trying to find the connections, like what are the connections? Because now I'm ramping up on the history of uh, the U.S. as, uh, you know, European colonizers uh, uh, massacring the indigenous, enslaving Africans uh, on the American land that already does not belong to them. And also, at the same time, colonizing my country and all of the land around it. And so none of the resources that this white power has and has been selling to everybody but actually belong to them. It belonged to black and brown indigenous people everywhere. And so I started thinking like, where does Palestine come in all of this? Also like in my theological research, like are all religions only from Palestine? Because like the Abrahamic religions, Muhammad, uh, Jesus, and uh, Moses and Abraham, they're all from that part of the world, Palestine, where I come from. And I'm like, there has to be some form of a connection. So I do more research about like, what what is the significance of Palestine? And one of my findings was that historically speaking, there was not a colonizing power in the world or an existent, not necessarily in this kind of area where we live in, like also in the eras before that, uh, Ottomans, uh, the Crusaders, like, you know, for as far back as you want to go, every civilization that existed really needed to colonize Palestine and that part of the world. And it used to be um, divided in different ways. The borders were drawn differently through different civilizations, but they all wanted to have that part of the world. And my assessment now is that it has to be because that part of land is the only thing that connects all of Asia to Africa. So that's the kind of like the connection between all of the uh, the history and the civilization and the knowledge that's on the East with Africa. And so that it has to be colonized by whatever power. And we exist in a white supremacist world. So they have to colonize it, but they cannot make it sound as if it's colonized because after the Second World War, that was like, no, no more of that. So they had to make it look like it's because of a whatever reason. They had to come up with other reasons why it needed to be. They said that there was no people on that land, all of that, all of these things. So that's why I think that I'm saying all of this because I do consider myself to be Asian because that's how I grew up thinking of myself as Asian. But there were a lot of moments, me and other friends of mine who are Palestinians, when we are applying for funds for film or for art or all of that, they're always hesitant to apply for it as an Asian because they're like, we don't want to take the place of someone else who is Asian. So it's just like, 
it's there's so much confusion about it around it and none of this none of it belongs to us it's all because of the indoctrination how we were taught about our, what I, our identity is and who is our people and what is our community and all of these standards and it was all controlled and socialized by fear and that fear none of it is ours that fear belongs to the colonizer who's afraid if the black and brown people rise up against them basically yeah wow so i mean i just want to keep going back to that bridge metaphor because it's like the bridge between asia and africa it's a bridge that's created by this idea of white supremacy and colonization and now you know just what you said about your identity having to negotiate that and try to make space for other people that are you know are they more asian than you or are they less asian than you like why do we even have to ask this question it's ridiculous and that goes back to the part about the history we want to write you know like it might sound crazy for people right now that i'm saying this but maybe this is the history i wish for <laughs> you know can you imagine the amount of power and creativity and diversity that would be if that land was open for everybody I mean, Palestinians, I was interrogated for seven hours entering Palestine for the first time. Palestinians get denied entry to their own country every single day, every single day. Palestinians, because they're Palestinians, they have U.S. citizenships and they are on the border with the U.S. citizenship. But because they have a Palestinian name or a Palestinian father, they're not allowed in. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. It makes you reconsider what home is and who gets to go there what home is and who gets to go there. Yeah. And that's a very important question. It really is. I'm so glad you brought it up because that's the, the question that I try to study in my paintings. You know, it's an identity study about like, what does it mean to be Palestinian anyway? Because I'm only allowed to go for a specific time that is allowed to me by my colonizer, you know? So is Palestinian who I am, as I am, the way I am? Because, you know, you grow up with a, like, if you're not in Palestine, then you're not Palestinian. But it was not my choice not to be in Palestine. I don't even have a choice to enter the country, you know. I don't even have a choice to decide what the country borders are. They were decided for me by the British, by another colonizer. So um, that's why, you know, at least in my art, I want to be all the layers that I am. I want to be a Muslim woman because I don't want to continue to be defined as a Muslim woman by what white men decided for me. You know, I want to unpack my spirituality. I want to unpack my femininity. I don't want to continue to exist in the frameworks that patriarchy has put for me. You know, I don't have to express my femininity in the way everybody else expects of me, you know, and through art, you don't have to abide. You don't have to be pragmatic. I'm a designer in my day job and design is based on pragmatism, but in art, you just can be creative and come up with new solutions or new questions at least if not solutions, to problems you know exist. And I think that's good enough for now. I can leave that behind as an, a Palestinian artist, as honest as I can, because sometimes being honest is also relevant. I don't know. But I'm trying to put these down so that hopefully in the future someone can build something else on them, you know, and tell more stories about what, what does it mean to be a Palestinian, because all Palestinians have right now is our story. Yeah, I mean, I think it is courageous. I think it's very courageous because it's very difficult to grapple with these intersecting identities that have been dictated by the white man. It's hard to unpack it and 
you know, you don't want to just back away from it. You want to just create your own shape because it wasn't right that they carved it in the first place, you know? Yeah. I see how art can be a, a new language to do that. I don't want to be like the uh, women that I had to paint, you know, um, the vintage Arab women that I painted before. I don't want to be left in my Orientalist eye. I want to leave something that is my story. Definitely. What other projects are you working on right now in terms of your artwork or um, any writing or anything else? You know, there's always uh, exciting projects that I'm working on. I have such an amazing uh, network of really talented artists around me from all over the world, really. One of my projects that I'm really excited about is going to launch tomorrow, and it's a campaign to feed Palestinian children in Gaza during this Ramadan. Uh, it's supposed to feed 30,000 Palestinian children. So it reminded me a lot of the Books and Breakfast program uh, that the Black Panthers started here in the U.S. And, you know, when the organizers reached out to me, I just couldn't say no to it. And so I, I painted the artwork for the campaign. It's hopefully going to launch tomorrow. Um, working with uh, different friends from college on books that we thought we should have growing up that we didn't have. And so now we decided to create them. And I'm also working, I just posted it today, actually, the anniversary of Nakba's coming up, like I mentioned, in May. And I want to be able from May until July, July is the month when my family was pushed out of their town. During those two months, I like to meditate on how can I fight this Nakba through my art, <laughs> you know? And um, I asked people to share with me the names of uh, people that they loved, whom they have lost over the years, Palestinians. Um, we call them shuhada, the murders, the witnesses, basically. If they could share names with me so that I can include them in my paintings of Nakba this year, so that their names are not forgotten. Because I feel like, because we always hear a Palestinian was murdered here, a Palestinian was murdered there, we take it for granted and we forget to document the names of these people. And we forget to ask the people who have lost them how they're doing, right? Because there's just so much death. And so I, I wanted to give space for these people to share the names of the people that they love. And the feedback and the reply has been overwhelming and I haven't even started painting yet, which gives me, you know, adds a little bit of pressure on me, but it's the pressure that I need to give back to our people and all of the, the things that they have sacrificed. My father's generation, my mother's generation, the first generation to get an education so that we can, you know, thrive and live our best life in the future, you know? So it's just for them to give back to them and for all the other Palestinian mother, mothers and fathers who lost their children and you know, knew or lived in the fear of losing their children, constant fear. Those sound like amazing projects. Wow, they really do. I think one thing that I'm really going to take away from this conversation is this idea of continuing to write our stories and doing it for the sake of those that have incurred so much trauma in terms of our ancestry. So thank you for that. Hopefully write them down until we heal. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for being here on Migration, Suhad. It was an honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I love all of your listeners and I love you.
During this episode, I paused to reflect in awe of Suhad during so many of these moments. She represents someone who is raw and views the world organically, because it is. The world is a space that is in constant growth, from the roots of our pain to planting new stories and writing new histories. We have so much power. The article that Suhad mentions is a beautiful essay written by Arundhati Roy, titled, The Pandemic is a Portal. This is linked in the show notes. In this essay, Roy writes about the politics and migration around this public health crisis and how it is a portal, a window to imagine new worlds. In Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement, activist and writer Angela Davis writes, Whenever you conceptualize social justice struggles, you will always defeat your own purposes if you cannot imagine the people around whom you are struggling as equal partners. Our liberation is not individual. We are in communities, communities with deep migration histories. For Suhad, it was Palestine to Oman before her, and then Oman to Jordan, to St. Louis, to San Francisco during her life. For me, it was Mumbai to Pittsburgh, all around the East Coast to Chicago before me, and from Chicago to LA during my life. How much colonization, liberation, and trauma lives within these spaces? How will we reckon with these migration stories? How much are we willing to fight for the collective? Once we realize that we are all indeed connected, that our dollars and footsteps are deeply intertwined, will we see how necessary it is to see ourselves as equal partners in this struggle? That doesn't mean it affects us the same, but perhaps it is this inequity which we need to question with tenacious curiosity and imaginative world-building. As always, I'd like to thank my creative talent that helped me in this episode. So thank you to Tiffany Wong for your help with the Migrations cover art, and thank you to Shin Kawasaki for the Migrations song, Find Another Way. Music was also provided via CC Mixter by Airtone with the song Resonance. And last but not least, thank you to Quincy Sirismith for editing this episode. And of course, I want to give a shout out to my $20 a month and above Patreon patrons. So thank you to my brother Shalene and Dahlia Guerrero for your generous support. Thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. Remember, you could support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash migrations. This is Nisha Modi. Thanks again for listening and until next time. Oh, 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 o